0: At the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, Ben Franklin delivered a famous speech, a now famous speech, in which he said this. He said, in the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who are engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten our powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? He continues, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. After which, Franklin proceeded to call for daily morning prayer before the convention's Deliberations. So, whatever his other beliefs, Franklin certainly got the sense of our text from Psalm 127 right. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And so, we'll look at this text Psalm 127. Psalm 127 under two headings the house in verses 1 and 2, and sons in verses. 3 through 5, there is an outline in the back of your bulletin. So, first then the house. Note that Psalm 127 is another of the songs of ascent. It's in that part of the Psalter. Songs sung on the way up to the Lord's house by pilgrims, going to the temple, going to the city of Jerusalem. The psalm is attributed to Solomon. Solomon is the builder of the temple. He's the builder of cities. And thus the house and the city mentioned in verse 1 are probably first and foremost, and this is often, I think, obscured, the Lord's house, his temple, in his city, Jerusalem. And we shall return to this later. Yet clearly... It also means the houses and cities that we build. Or more broadly, the text is about the projects that we engage in. The text is about your endeavors. Human labor. And and the word in the text for build or builders. And house in verse 1. And the word for children, literally sons in verse 3. All those words all sound alike. And so the text... The text is evoking, it's, it's trading upon a double meaning in the idea of house. A house can be a structure or a house can be a family or a dynasty. A house can be a building or a house can be a people. And this goes all the way back to God's words to, to David in 2 Samuel 7, where he tells David that he, the Lord, would build David's house meaning David's dynasty. But David's son, Solomon, would build God's house, meaning the temple. And so the two halves, the two halves of Psalm 127, the first about building a house, and the second about children or offspring, are deeply related. So, verse 1 Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. The two phrases here are parallel. The difference is, the metaphor shifts from building a house to guarding or watching a city. So it's important to notice this. Both building and conserving what we build are in view in the text. Now, notice the text does not say, it does not say, unless the Lord consents. It doesn't say, unless the Lord permits the house to be built or the city to be watched. It doesn't even say unless the Lord participates. It doesn't say unless the Lord is involved. It doesn't say unless you have God as your co-pilot or your co-builder. It doesn't even say unless the Lord takes the lead and guides the project. It says rather starkly, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless he watches the city, the guards watch in vain. The text places the success, the prosperity of our building, completely, completely in the Lord's action. It's not like we act and then we need his seal of approval. The text is saying the Lord must be the actor. He himself builds it. Psalm 127 says, otherwise all the builders labor in vain. He conserves it or the watchers work in vain. And vain is a key word in the text. It means empty or futile or pointless. Unable to genuinely bless us or prosper us. Now you probably have a few questions arising. You should at this point. But the text is stating that our labors are to be the Lord's work. Otherwise they lead nowhere. They're pointless. They may appear to bear some fruit. But they're ultimately not going to further God's purposes and rightly prosper you. And so the text is affirming that the God here in view is the architect and the builder and the preserver of all things. Not simply one who comes along and says, Hey, that's a, that's a good job. I think I'll prosper that. Yet the text does not encourage the text does not encourage passivity or sloth. You know, a sort of let go and let God mentality, simply waiting lazily for God to build. The text envisions builders. There's builders, human builders in the text, and laboring builders at that. The text expects diligent laboring and conserving. We work and God works. As Cromwell told his army, trust God and keep your powder dry. But, but the thing that this text is, is trying to teach us, the thing we must learn, is that we are not co-equal partners. Right? His actions, the decisive action. And that's the force of the repeated unless. That word unless in verse 1. By the way, that word, the whole psalm can be unpacked from that word. That unless, don't glide over it, can be daunting. Notice it's total. There's no sphere of our labors where it doesn't apply unless the Lord builds, is stamped over all human endeavor, all human enterprises. Now, notice this as well. There's no recipe to secure it, the text gives no prescriptions. There's no commands in the text. There's no list of things to guarantee success. I mean, there are things we can and should do to make it, humanly speaking, more likely. But this unless, at the beginning of the text, cannot be tamed and it cannot be captured. You might think it can. It's our nature to think it can be. Jesus said, if we obey his word, our house will be built upon the rock, and our house will withstand the storms. But he's talking about the house of your life. In Psalm 27, we have a house which is a metaphor for your endeavors, your projects, your building, your laboring. Jesus is not promising success in all your endeavors in exchange for obedience, That would be a preposterous reading of Jesus' words. He is saying that you will stand in the judgment if you follow him faithfully. A person can, and many do, have a successful and obedient walk with Jesus Christ and numerous disastrous failed projects. I mean, that's probably the norm. I mean, the early Jewish Christians had their houses and cities burned, not established for following Jesus. I mean, Paul says it's possible for you to build with wood and hay and stubble and have everything you worked on be destroyed in the eschatological judgment and you can be saved as though you were singed with fire. So, the point I'm trying to make here is this unless cannot be turned into this. And this is our temptation. We want to take the unless and we want to say this. Well, if you do this and this and this, then all your works will succeed. As if what the psalmist should have done was say, unless the Lord builds the house. Now, I know this is a little disturbing, so let me give you five steps so that you can guarantee that the Lord is building the house that your works are. The text does nothing like that. We want to take this unless, and we want to strip it. The unless establishes an impenetrable mystery between God's working and our work. It maintains his sovereign freedom. It maintains his prerogatives because we're reminded in the text that the one who enables us and who sustains your work and who prospers your work and who blesses your work can also nullify your work and thwart your work and work around your work and above your work and against your work. And in the ordinary projects of life, And that's what this text is envisioning, the ordinary projects of life. We are prone to forget this. Very much so. So we glide over the unless. There is a mysterious uncertainty about life. And about even the best laid plans concerning our work and our families and the houses we're building, such that even noble. Plans often do not come to fruition. I mean, ask any person in their later years of life if things went the way they planned when they were young. Yeah, things pretty much worked out. Everybody's in some form of an unraveling narrative. Right? We all spent half our lives saying, I didn't plan on this. I mean, that's the reason for the repeated unless in the text. And so, what the text is after then, is cultivating in us a deep dependence on and a recognition of this situation, of our need for the Lord's the Lord's guidance in ordinary activities. It's seeking to instill the attitude that James wrote about in the New Testament lesson this morning, which is why that was the New Testament lesson, where he says this. I'll quote a chunk of it again. Listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Right? If, if you watch CNBC, you need to pay attention right now. Because they spend all day doing this. But, they don't, they, but no one ever comes on and says the next verse. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a midst that appears for a while and then vanishes. That's, that's in no corporate five-year plan. But that's an echo. That is an echo of the in vain in our text. Instead, James says, you ought to say this. If it's the Lord's will and we live, then we can go do stuff, right? And then he says, and as it is, you're boasting in arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. That's the New Testament equivalent of unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And so there's a spirit here. Of humility about the limits of human labor. About the frailty and the contingency of our work and our planning. And about the need in life to submit to this inscrutable providence of God. And without this spirit, without this disposition, what's very interesting is James says the diligent of the world, the planners who don't plan in this spirit are engaged in arrogant scheming and evil boasting. Now, we kick against this, we humans, because we love control and we seek to guarantee the outcome of our works. We know life has risks. Who doesn't know that? And we know things can go badly. And as Christians, we may even know the unless. You know, unless the Lord builds the house, we know the text. But we are inveterate leverage seekers. We don't like uncertainty. Right? They'll tell you that on CNBC every day. The market doesn't like uncertainty. <laughs> Thus the temptation of verse 2 arises. This is how we get from verse 1 to verse 2. In vain, there's the vanity again, futility, for the third time in the text. In vain, you rise up early and stay up late. So you've come to terms with the nature of life to some extent. But there are people who are convinced that the success of every project depends on them. So this sort of person says, there's risk and uncertainty, I'll just work harder. I'll get to the office earlier and I'll stay later. Notice that in the text. The person that doesn't grasp verse 1 does verse 2. And the text says this is vanity. You're grasping at a vapor. You're shepherding the wind. The unless stands. You can't work it away. And, And all of this kind of excessive labor. You know, this is beyond due diligence. We're not talking about not being diligent. This is moving on to a kind of controlling excess. It leaves us, the text says, toiling for food to eat. That refers to Genesis 3, to the curse which is upon man's labor. And that that curse cuts across human existence. It's a big part of why the unless stands. We forget it. And so this leaves a person who tries to outrun it, eating the bread of anxious toil, the text says. So work itself, under the unless, in this world, where there's a curse on the ground and a curse on our labors, work itself has to be an endeavor of trust, not anxiety-ridden pursuit. We forget this. And that's why the text alludes to the Genesis curse. We are not in Eden, and none of the projects we execute are being executed in Eden. We're outside of Eden, and outside of Eden, all projects are precarious because everything's precarious outside of Egypt, uh, outside of Eden. But we're not laboring in a neutral world. We're not laboring on a level playing field. We're laboring in a bent world. The book of Ecclesiastes says the world is bent toward folly, not toward wisdom. It says, dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So you have a big vat of perfumer's oil. You put a few dead flies in it, you ruin all the perfume. But but the reverse doesn't work. You can't have a big bucket of dead flies and splash some perfume on it. And then say, oh great, the flies are all beautiful now. The world is bent toward folly. A little bit of folly ruins a ton of wisdom. Right? One mistake, projects unravel. You can't be in the middle of an unraveling project and say, if we only can do one thing right now, we'll fix the whole project. No. One mistake unravels a project. And one good thing can never fix a project. The world is bent. Right? If you drag your clothes through the mud, the mud does not get clothy. Right? Your clothes get muddy. The world is biased against wisdom, it's biased against success. All projects take place outside of Eden. The unless stands. And so, this text, read rightly, like a lot of scripture, unnerves us a bit it should but it's doing it to liberate you it is doing it for good to heal and the end of verse two is wonderfully liberating this exhausting rising up early and staying up late is vain for the text says notice the contrast for he the lord grants sleep to those whom he loves isn't that wonderful uh, th- this miracle of sleep a mini sabbath every 24 hours like a third of the day off you know what's that that's like two that's like 2. Uh, f- you know four days off a week before you even count your days off this is this is a reminder that the greatest gifts are given the greatest gifts are not in our hands that's what the psalm says sleep is a reminder it's a temporary death. It reminds us of our finitude, of our deep dependence, of our creatureliness. It reminds us of the end of all our labors. And of our destiny in the coming Sabbath. We fall into the unless of this text every night when we fall asleep. You fall into the hands of this unless. Unless. Unless the Lord grant us sleep, we lay awake all night. And unless the Lord wakes us, we sleep the sleep of death. But we fall into it with confidence and joy because the text says the Lord loves us. He delights to give the gift of sleep. Not only does he give sleep, the text says, but he he keeps building and watching and working even while we sleep. God does more while you're sleeping than you'll ever do when you're awake. He gives sleep and then he gives while we're sleeping. Some some translations of Psalm 127 interpret that phrase as he gives while we sleep. So it's an amazing thing, isn't it? We have seen this appeal to the glory and the wonder of sleep quite a bit in the Psalms. Quite a bit. They have a full-blooded theology of sleep. The psalmist is a sleepologian. So it is this sleep that God gives, the text says, to deliver us from the vanity. And by vanity here, he means the blasphemous anxiety of trying to do God's building and watching for him. There's something blasphemous about our anxiety. Right? We think, well, I'm just just checking on my kids. I'm just watching I'm just texting. I'm just hovering. I'm just concerned. Like we have wonderful ways of sanctifying our anxieties. But we are often trying to do God's watching for him. We assume like good works, righteousness, heretics, that if if everything doesn't depend on us, then at least us and God are co-partners. And so you know what a major lesson of this psalm is? It's this. Relax. It's a big part of what the psalm's trying to say. Loosen up your grip on life. That's my translation. Um, not only does everything not depend on you, verse 1 makes it clear that not even the decisive big stuff depends on you. Not even the important stuff depends on you. I know, it's anti-American. Um, so we do well here to heed the, heed the poem of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Let me cite a few lines from it. She says this, Of all the thoughts of God that are Born inward into souls afar Along the psalmist's music deep Now tell me if that any is For gift or grace surpassing this, he giveth his beloved sleep. That's the house. The second point is sons. Children in verse 3 is sons. Though offspring in the next phrase would include daughters as well. When my children were young, uh, I used to think when I read this psalm, that I spied a little bit of divine humor in the transition between verse 2 and verse 3. For to speak of the sweet gift of sleep, and then immediately to say, children, surely ironic. Many a young parent can attest to that. From sleep to sleep stealers, I used to think. A strange move indeed. But we should note something about this shift. Some have found uh, this move in the text strange, but it's perfectly natural for two reasons. One is the one I mentioned earlier. House and dynasty, building and seed, children, they're they're connected. right? Uh, But second... It's important to catch this. Children like sleep. They are illustrative of what Solomon is trying to teach us about the unless. So what I mean by that is this. While the action of parents is required for offspring, unless the Lord gives conception, the parents labor in vain. So the highest gifts, sleep, And children remind us of just how subordinate and how secondary and how frail our own actions are. Children are a heritage, a trust, a divine blessing on the marriage. But the raw material with which you build your house is given. It's given by the Lord. You don't choose it. He gives you these little building projects as he sees fit. And if he doesn't give them, then one's house, in this sense, remains unbuilt. The unless stands here. Even as the, the curse of Genesis 3 was mentioned earlier about toiling for food, so childbearing, childbirth, and indeed childrearing, are also undertaken with pain and with sacrifice in the fallen world under this unless. Children can... And children do turn out to be liabilities, not blessings. That's a sort of word of realism that needs to be said. And they're almost always a handful before they're a quiverful. They're going to steal a lot of your sleep before they give you any back. This text is assuming well-formed children. The text doesn't assume to have, you know, A large number of of maladjusted children is a blessing. That's not a blessing. The text is assuming a well-formed children who are fashioned, the text goes on to say, into arrows for holy spiritual warfare. Blessed is the man and woman whose quiver is full of that sort of child. So again, labor is required. Obviously labor is required. Parents know that. But Just like watching and building are required in verse 1. But both the very existence and the formation of children are under this unless. There's no formula to guarantee success. Again, there are things you're called to do. But here the text does not revert or resort to some sort of formula. Ultimately, success rests with the covenant-making God and the sovereign spirit. I mean, there are awful parents with wonderful children and wonderful parents with awful children. Now, that's not the norm, perhaps. It's not to be the norm, but it's also not an isolated example either. God builds this house as well. And the unless holds here. And when he does build and when he forms them, they go into battle, the text says. You can see this at the end of verse 5. And they speak, the text says, to their enemies in the gates. That is, in the public civic spheres of life. In other words, children formed by the Lord, the builder, and by the parents, but not as co-partners. They advance the kingdom into the next generation. This text is an illusion. It's important to get this speak with their enemies in the gates part right. In Genesis 22... After God called Abraham to offer up Isaac and gives him back, God says to Abraham that your seed, your children, will possess the gates of their enemies. That's what's being referred to here. So we noted that Solomon is, he's the author of the text. Now, he's a sort of a prime example of what I've been talking about. We should recall that a good bit of Solomon's laboring and his temple building, and his house building, and his offspring, end in vanity. In other words, the guy who wrote this text watched and built in vain quite a bit. He didn't escape the unless or the possibility of vain and futile labor. Neither did Israel. Israel. Right? The unless is not chewing around the existence. Israel's whole history ends in exile. Their whole temple building project ends in smoldering embers. But there's one child, one son of Abraham, the one Paul calls the seed of Abraham, the greater Solomon, the true heir and offspring, namely Jesus Christ. And this text must be read in and through him. He is the child given. He's the well-formed arrow. He's the one in whom all the people of God shall possess the gates of their enemies. If our work and our labor were to be scrutinized by the strict justice of God's law, none of us would stand. Nor would our labors. This Christ is the Lord in this text who's building and watching over the temple city of his church. And here I remind you of what we said at the outset in verse 1. We're returning to the opening. That the house and the city are first and foremost Jerusalem and the temple there. And let me tell you, in that building project, a project which will not be in vain because Jesus is the builder, because the gates of hell will not prevail against that project. All of your building projects, including your children, are embraced. And you should think of yourself as building in the context of the indestructible building project of this Christ. Your building projects, some will work out, some won't, some will be mixed. And so there is a, a sense in which we can say with Paul that our labor in the Lord for the sake of this city shall somehow mysteriously not be in vain. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So the text calls you to walk something of a high rope here, a tightrope, a high wire. We should not lose heart. God's building project, God's house, which you are, God's children, who you are, shall not be subject to vanity. That's how we start to encourage ourselves from this text. If you just take this text and evaluate your own set of building projects, you're either going to fall into despair because so many of them have unraveled, or you're going to fall into self-righteousness because you're, well, my stuff's turning out better than this guy's stuff. God's building projects not subject to vanity. And so let us, let us be diligent without being anxious. We labor, but we rest and we sleep. We cast our anxiety, our blasphemous anxieties, upon the one, and we saw this in the gospel, who feeds the sparrow, clothes the lilies with a glory exceeding Solomon's glory. Solomon's temples and runes. There's lots of lilies out there and sparrows that are well fed. Right? This is the one who labors with us, who labors above us, who labors without us whose house shall be built, whose city shall be guarded, whose children shall possess the gates of their enemies. Amen.